August 5th, 130 people dead and counting. The glass lay shattered like the hope for a true uprising. People across the country take to the streets, not to protest, but to clean. Clean the rubble and collect the very same bodies that elect their perpetrators. Hundreds of volunteers, but not one government official in sight. Beirut, our home, a city rebuilt one too many times. Three politicians could not foresee, or five dominant sects being victim to their actions. Levels of destruction spanning six miles due to explosives stored for seven years. Seven times Beirut has been rebuilt. One too many times. It feels like an open wound, deepening, waiting patiently to heal, but mourning is interrupted by the need to clear the destruction and find somewhere to stay when your home is no longer recognisable. Except this wound has been present, present for several years. So obvious yet so invisible through war, economic poverty, unemployment, electric shortage and ultimately discontent. These scenes sound too familiar. The Lebanese people taking matters into their own hands. Democracy can't save them from a system set in stone since 1989. Yet again, another generation experiencing and reliving the trauma of their parents. Welcome to Lebanon Beirut in the year 2020. The day after the port explosion ripped through the capital city. It has been over 30 years since the Taif Agreement was signed and the state turned into a sectarian power-sharing government. The agreement ended a 15-year civil war in Lebanon and guaranteed the representation of the three dominant religious sects. The president must always be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister a Sunni and the speaker of parliament a Shia. Political parties are formed along religious lines with each party controlling different government ministries. However, this was only meant to be temporary. What was meant to be an instrument for peace between the religious sects turned into a political tool to only serve the interests of their own sect and line the pockets of the political elite. Politicians didn't use money to fund the services they were meant to provide for and instead used it for their own gain. A sort of paradox. A sectarian government divided among religious lines but united in the desire for wealth and power. And leaders cling on to this system, not to maintain peace but to retain their clientelism. The system created this revolving door which keeps a certain few political elite in power. Sectarian affiliation permeates every aspect of life in Lebanon. When people are employed based on their sect rather than their qualification, it has devastating impacts on the economy and the public sector. 
students unable to obtain university education and thrive without letters of support from political leaders. If only it was actually about identity. Keeping citizens dependent, divided and scared has benefited the control the state has over its people and reinforced sectarian lines, enabling corruption and rewarding them with profitable contracts. Politics and the economy are characterised by nepotism and networks of patronage, with the leaders offering positions of power in return for loyalty to the political party. It became about influence, with politicians having no experience in creating a sustainable economy or a democratic state. Economic mismanagement and the lack of accountability between the sects and between the people in the state had led to Lebanon accruing billions of dollars in debt. By 2015, it owed $70 billion, a debt worth more than the country's GDP. But the government didn't do enough to tackle this. 2019, October 17th, the government announced new taxes on calling services such as WhatsApp to reduce the debt they accumulated. And this triggered protests in the capital city. What would happen following this would shake the country to the core. The remnants of the Arab Spring would be reignited. What can a population do when it is faced with a corrupt government and they themselves are divided? You will see how a government was able to put a nation in economic collapse, social disorder and treat lives as disposable. But are they the only ones to blame? Senior lecturer in politics at the University of Liverpool, Hannes Bauman, tells us how sectarianism is an underlying cause of many of Lebanon's problems. Lebanon is a really interesting case in a sense because we had the Arab Spring where the dictators in Tunisia and Egypt, for instance, were removed through popular protests. But Lebanon is slightly different because it is formally a democracy, right? You have elections. But since its foundation, it's had a power sharing formula because political scientists often describe it as a deeply divided society. So there are different sects in the country, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, Maronite Christians being the largest groups, but a lot of other Christian and Muslim and heterodox sects being there. And they've gained political relevance. And the kind of proponents of that system which is often referred to as consociationism, they say, well, it has several advantages. First of all, it is a way of managing sectarian conflict. The other advantage, they say, is that Lebanon has avoided the kind of majoritarian rule and the kind of authoritarianism that other Arab countries have experienced. Now, the, the kind of detractors or the critics of the system point out that what you end up with is that all politics in Lebanon is always then seen or filtered through the lens of sectarianism. The garbage collection, the mobile phone issue, anything, then becomes negotiated between the leaders of the Sunnis and the leaders of the Shia. That's not always the best way of approaching politics or practical issues and questions. And so the other effect is that kind of perpetuates sectarian divisions. It undermines elite accountability. So what we see in Lebanon is that the same families and politicians stay in power for 
for generations, really. Although it's a democratic system, there isn't much competition at the head of the, at the system. And that has fostered corruption. It has fostered a very unequal political economy. And this governance system in Lebanon is, of course, being propped up by outside powers as well, who all indulge their own side in a sense. And that often runs along sectarian lines. So Saudi Arabia, which is, is run by a Sunni monarchy and follows a kind of particularly strict line of Sunni Islam, they traditionally supported the Hariri family who are Sunnis and actually became wealthy in Saudi Arabia. Iran supports Hezbollah, which follows an ideology inspired by the Iranian revolution. And different Western powers have been sort of taking sides, trying to kind of support the system in Lebanon. And what we've had now is the French president coming to Beirut after the explosion in Beirut port in August and promising to change the system somehow and make elites more accountable. But at the same time, what they're afraid of is a kind of refugee wave and instability in Lebanon that create more refugees and more problems for Europe. And so they have to kind of work with the elites because they want to stabilise the country somehow. It seems like the Lebanese government are not the only ones benefiting and perpetuating the sectarian system. They themselves are also met with pressures from foreign actors. It is October 19th, 2019. We hold hands tightly, our fingers interlock whilst we dance the depki in a synchronised fashion, holding the weight of each other on either side. We form a large circle connected by our outrage, but also love for our nation. Our hearts and minds come to rendezvous, but find itself in a space that has a much greater purpose. The circle enlarges as another person is inserted into this rotating ring, taking up more space, the sounds of our feet tapping on the floor get louder, our hearts beat a little faster, and this feeling of joy intensifies. To the left of us, tyres are engulfed by vibrant orange flames. The acidic smell of the rubber violently invades our nostrils. But the only thing we acknowledge in that moment is the sound of the tabli, the drums beating while we dance in unison. The colours of red, white and green is all we see whilst we wave our flags as if it symbolised more than a corrupt government. And as if it was something to be reclaimed, our country to be given back to its people and be for the people. Whilst our mouths are closed, the flag does the talking. The red for the anger and bloodshed for liberation. The white for the peace we ever so much crave and the green cedar tree for prosperity whilst we face a worthless currency. But back to the Debke, I don't even know the man next to me who I'm holding hands with. At the moment I cannot identify who is Shia, Sunni, Druze, Maronite, Christian. He is probably not even from this area. But when we wave the same flag, fight against the same people, we all belong to the space. The sun sets. We continue to sing, we continue to chant, no longer missing any opportunity to be heard. Killon yani killon rolls off our tongues so easily, meaning all of them means all of them. We need to hold all of them accountable. The country needs to be rid of all of them. We are against 
all of them. But who is all of them? So, I spoke to Joseph Daher, a teacher at Lausanne University, who described the Lebanese public sentiment with scenes of inclusion and a united front against the ruling class. People are fed up of this political economic system in Lebanon, and this is why the slogan of the 2019 uprising was very important. All mean all. And which went over, you know, sectarian differences, making all the sectarian leaders part of the problem. This was very important because if you don't say this, you can fall again into sectarian differences. For example, you had in Tripoli two neighborhoods that combat each other for decades. One is Alawite, one is Sunni, with sectarian parties always instrumentalizing their differences to push them to fight. They came together. You had a big demo. You had signs of solidarity. It was basically people saying, enough. And all the people living in Lebanon, whether Syrians, foreign workers, have been eroding in the past decade, especially. But since the, you know, the end of the civil war, because of the neoliberal policies benefiting a small group of people, very often connected to the ruling neoliberal secular democracy, you know, going over beyond sectarian differences. And this is what a key aspect of the uprising. And the main difference, I would say, than the previous uprisings, the Youth Think Movement, the 2011 People Want the End of the Sectarian Regime, is that you saw throughout Lebanon people coming out, and not only Beirut, from the north to the south, Nabatiye and other areas, the Beqa, Tripoli, challenging also the sectarian differences and showing signs of solidarity between the region over this, and very much rooted into popular classes, much more than, than before. Socioeconomic, democratic, but you also had feminist issues that can be involved, and the feminist association and movement played a very important role at the beginning of the uprising. Also, the rights of foreign workers also was raised, challenging the racism against Syrians, Palestinians. And this is important to remember that few weeks before the Lebanese uprising, you had what we called the uprising of the camps, because the Lebanese labor minister wanted to restrict even more the rights of Palestinians in Lebanon by forbidding them to work in certain work. And already they have been, you know, they're forbidden to work in more than 70 professions in Lebanon. Although the media portrayed scenes of celebration and unity, many were not included in the so-called revolution. This begs the question whether there were really any signs of a non-sectarian society. A massive amount of people, refugees, you have to add to that the foreign workers, who are also in miserable, actually, state, were not included in any of the demonstrations. Their demands were not included at all. So you had, in fact, a middle-class revolt to a great extent, because the middle-class could find the time to be there in the square. They could also find the way to be there in the square. They would actually very much occupy downtown with their demands, and their demands were very much existential you know, of existential nature because they felt that they were being eliminated. And for that matter, you had demands that they were very much middle-class demands. Corruption, it's a demand that it's expressed by people who think that they need to have a place in the distribution of resources, but they don't have a place, so they want a place. We didn't have actually demands that they were addressing more the social injustice, for example. We didn't have demands for like nationalizing healthcare. You didn't have demands about free education. 
didn't have demands that would come from or to the job market. So you had demands that somehow would, one could say that would represent a specific milieu in society. So what I tried to do in this piece is to localize the different rationalities of popular anger. These days, protests are very much spatially structured. So space and city space plays a very important role. Symbolically, you have groups that are more interested in direct confrontation with the powers at be. So these groups were, for example, those are culminating in front of the, of the Serai. And their idea was, we need to confront power now, and we actually can do it also if uh, if needed be with violent means. Demands that they were addressing also the economy and, and the organization of the state. On the other side, you had a different crowd on the Marty Square. The crowd was less violence prone, more celebratory, more curious to discuss, to exchange ideas, you know, more kind of an agora. They would also enjoy this open space of democracy, this new breeze. Of, of popular organization and at the same time the demands that they were suggesting were mostly revolving around ideas of transparency, meritocracy. We just heard from Nicholas Cosmetopoulos, assistant professor at American University of Beirut. It seems like the uprising was not as secular as portrayed in the media and in fact political actors sought to reinforce sectarian division. Joseph Daher talks about this further. Sectarian ruling parties trying to divide it also through sectarian ways. For example, Hezbollah and Amal sending protesters in the center of Beirut where they have protests screaming Shia, 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 or speaking about, you know, we want to go back 8th of May when Hezbollah and allies in 2008 entered sectors of Beirut, militarily speaking. And others, you know, when Saad Hariri resigned, a few months later he was saying, you know, the only position that was hit that I had to resign is the Sunni position. So the ruling sectarian parties use sectarianism once again to try to divide the movement. It is August 9th, 2020, now five days after the explosion. Morning is interrupted by the great need to fight a system that oppresses us and calls us the enemy. We put away the drums, instead our hands are used to slam onto the metal doors that shield the Lebanese parliament. Our feet no longer tap to the beat, but are occupied by the need to run when the sounds of marching government forces advances in an attempt to disperse us. Anger is rising to the surface, the smell of the fumes become more noticeable as we become aware of our surroundings. A swarm of riot police approach us and our uniforms clearly distinguish us. Shirtless men with scarves wrapped around their mouths versus blacked out police uniforms. You would think it was the Lebanese people who were carrying tear gas and firing rubber bullets. Morning is interrupted when the state does not allow us to be angry and when those responsible are not held accountable. When our perpetrators are still sitting comfortable and thriving. Our mourning is interrupted when justice is still not served. The protest movement had been diminishing due to the coronavirus and the rapid economic turmoil, which saw prices of essential goods quadruple. However, the Lebanese people were met by what appeared to be their final competitor, the port explosion. It was more than an economic crisis that starved the people, but the state's negligence was also killing them. 
Over 200 people dead, 5,000 injured and as many as 300,000 people had been made homeless. 2,750 tonnes of ammonium nitrate had been stored unsafely at the warehouse in the port since 2013, whilst politicians argued over who was responsible for its removal. The port was used for most of the nation's essential imports, and the currency now too weak to even import materials needed for its reconstruction. The mood had transformed into something of rage and some of the most violent protests in history took place following the explosion. Protesters stormed the Foreign Secretary building in the name of the revolution, also known as the Thawra. The government unleashed its forces, firing rubber bullets, tear gas, in comparison to the stones being thrown by protesters. Nooses were carried by protesters to display the fury towards the government with calls for them to be hanged. Prime Minister Hassan Diab also acknowledges the pain, but to call for real action would be to confront the ruling class's actions or the lack thereof, a class he is also a member of. All of these important questions about the governance of the port, the economics of the port, the history of the port as a site of corruption and money laundering, what happens with the tax regime there, everything was totally obliterated as soon as one starts talking about Hezbollah and weapons and so on. So this kind of, of technique of pointing at Hezbollah at every single issue is a technique, I think, for the ruling class to get away with murder. Somehow there's always somebody else to blame, but not themselves. And this is, I guess, also important because Hezbollah itself is trying to maintain the balance of power. They are also aware that they need the political cover of the Lebanese political system in order to operate. So there's a very mutually profitable relationship that Hezbollah takes somehow the, the heat while the Lebanese elite, the economic elite, takes spike. And this is how the system maintains itself and reproduces itself somehow. Had actually people, for example, pointing at the current prime minister, Diab, Hassan Diab, as the elephant in the room that had to be brought to justice, while at the same time ignoring all the previous prime ministers, the previous governments. But what about the investigation the prime minister Hassan Diab promised? Just lately, actually, the judge that started the investigation regarding the criminal explosion of 4th August was was pushed out because uh, the two ministers he wanted to investigate launched kind of a request to to put him out from the investigation because his apartment had been touched by the explosion therefore he was not impartial they succeeded in it so a new judge was put in place but it's basically the investigation starting nearly from zero so you can see they have different means to prevent people to being held accountable. But again, what is also important to understand is not that you have a, a deepening of the social economic crisis, therefore you're going to have the system falling, not necessarily. The ruling sectarian classes can be much more resilient than the protest movement on this aspect. The mourning of loved ones continues to be interrupted with socioeconomic turmoil, corruption and increased repression. A revolutionary period has been opened, but to suggest a revolution has been achieved would be to dismiss the structures that remain. A political alternative needs to emerge to make the tears and anger worthwhile. We need to look closely at whether or not, or to what extent, political actors like Hezbollah, sectarianism, 
foreign influence or organisations like NGOs should have a place in this alternative. If a new beginning is what we aspire to achieve as a diaspora, we need to look introspectively and assess whether our own beliefs perpetuate sectarianism, especially if we are to return to our homeland.